Um, I'm gonna, I am gonna dedicate the reading to Zelda and to everyone at Vermont Studio Center because you're all so welcoming and kind. Anyway, so, so um, I was, I've said to a couple of people, one of the reasons, one of the ways, many, many, many ways I'm envious of visual artists or of poets is that like Peter the other day could like show like slides from whole bo like body of work. I could see like a lot of different projects and as a prose writer, I can either like read like one thing for 45 minutes or I can read like show like 10 slides. So I'm, I'm, I've chosen to show five short slides of my work method. So I'm gonna be reading short pieces from a couple of different books and some new work. Um, and, but I've tried to tie them together sort of around conversations I've had here this week at Vermont Studio Center. And um, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. And um, not to assume anything, but if you're, if you had the thought of clapping after something I read, I'm gonna ask you not to until the very end because I do wanna think of these, and this is like really gonna sound pretentious. I wanna think of them as like a, like a suite of pieces because they all kind of go in together. So, um, so, um, so I'm gonna start with, um, Peter grounded a lot of his um, presentation in uh, the notions of identity, and in particular identity of family origin and the um, significance of the, the death of the mother. Um, so I'm gonna read some pieces about um, my own mother's death and then my father's death um, and kind of move through ways of interpreting those deaths and impact of them. The first um, couple of pieces are from a book of mine called The End of Youth, which is a series of um, personal essays in quotation marks. Um, my folks died when I was 40 and there was something about, they both they died about a month apart and when that happened it was like, you know, you're not young anymore. If you ever thought you were, you're not. Um, and then after, and then that same year I also got married. So it was like, wow, I'm, I'm I mean, not legally, but whatever. Um, so um, I'll read three very short pieces from this book. The first one's called Heaven. I've been thinking a lot about heaven lately. I've been trying to imagine it. In one version, heaven is a garden, not Eden, but a great big vegetable garden with patches of zucchini and crookneck and summer squash and lots of heavy tomato vines with beefsteak and cherry and yellow tomatoes getting perfectly, perfectly ripe and zinnias and cosmos and lots of other flowers. There's an old lady in the garden. It's sunny out and she's wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. She's healthy and tan and stooping down over one of these plants, lying half asleep in the sun on the path behind her is a cat and they are happy. In the other version, heaven is a big field near a lake. It's early in the day before the sun has risen and the air is brisk and cool and ducks are flying overhead. There's a guy in the field, a tall, strong guy with a healthy, clean-smelling sweat of someone walking. He's wearing his duck-hunting gear, his waders and corduroy hat and pocketed vest. He's moving toward the water's edge where he'll shoot a couple of birds to bring home to his family. The lady in the first heaven is my mother brown-skinned and plump, with the full head of hair the way she was before she turned into the bald, gray-skinned sack of bones she was the month she died. The guy in the second version is my father, clear-eyed and strong and confident, not the sad and volatile, cloudy-eyed drunk he was for his last 40 years. I've been thinking about heaven because ever since my parents died, I wished I believed in some place I could imagine them. So, um, one of the conversations I've been having here at the Vermont Studio Center is um, with a woman who's recently lost a parent and that sort of reminded me of the sort of immediacy of that loss. Um, when my mother was d dying, I 
left my work and was go down. I went down to be her caretaker for several months, um, and my sister was able to also be there at the very end. This is called Breath. We sat in her house and listened to her breathe. When we heard her breathe, we knew she was still alive. It had been several weeks since she had walked. It had been weeks since she had stood on her own, since she had eaten anything solid. It had been days since she had been able to drink or take her pills through her mouth. The water we gave her, we gave on a sponge. We put it in her mouth, and she closed her mouth around it and sucked. I couldn't tell if it was will or conscious or involuntary, the way a baby would suck. She didn't look at us. That is, sometimes her eyes would turn in what we thought was our direction, but we couldn't tell if she was seeing us or something else, something beyond or past us. We couldn't see if she was seeing anymore. Her body sweat, the sweat would pour from her and we would change and change again the sheets around her. Sometimes her body was very hot. Her skin would flush with what the nurses called the terminal fever. At other times, her skin felt cold. This happens when the nurses said, what regulates the body's temperature breaks down. There are upper brain functions and lower brain functions and you can see the body shutting down in order. It had been a while since anyone had tried to put something in her portacath or tried to find a vein to give her something new. She was beyond what anyone could do. The last thing that she did alive was breathe. For days and nights we sat in her room with her or in the rooms where we tried to sleep and listened. We listened as her breath got short and ragged, as she seemed to gasp or gurgle, seemed to hold her breath. The periods of that got long. You'd count up to 10 or 20 and you would think she wouldn't breathe again, but then she would. The nurses called this apnea. They said that it began before the end. We listened and we waited. We listened after hope. This was in the winter and we had the heat turned on. When the furnace clicked on, it hummed and clanked and you couldn't hear. If you're watching TV or a video, you turn the volume up. Then when the temperature got where you'd put the set thermostat, the furniture would click off and you could hear again. My sister sat in our mother's room and listened to her breathe. The heat clicked on. It stayed on several minutes and then when it clicked off, the room was quiet. My sister counted to 10, then 20, then more. Then she came to the room where I slept and I went with her to our mother's room. There was no more the sound of breath. There only was the sound of something gone. Um, this one's called Inheritance. I have his build, his coloring, his thick brown wavy hair. What finickiness I have is his, the way he washed his hands and clipped his nails. I have his temper and his obstinance, his tendency to brood. I get impatient like he did. I have his cruelty. I have his anger and his lust. I have from him the trouble I've had with booze. 
From her I have my hands, my skin, the way she rocked back on her feet when she was nervous. I have her fear of walking on ice, her fear of being homeless. I talk to cats the way she did and coddle babies. I get the sudden, intense, almost ecstatic satisfaction she got from suddenly, obsessively cleaning house. I can carry a grudge the way she did, and I remember slights. It takes me long, if not forever, to forgive. One time when I was in junior high, a while after my father had left, my mother suddenly stopped, yelled at me, stop it, stop. I looked at her like, what? She was flustered and apologized, but the way I was clipping my fingernails, she said, was exactly, quote, exactly the way your father did, close quote. She said it drove her crazy. I have his love of music, and I use it like he did to get away. I can, the way he did, shut people out. I can, the way he did, ignore someone who wants me. I can be repulsed by need. I have her love of history, of guided tours with docents and of picnics in the cold. I learned from her to help old guys and ladies cross the street and to be patient with the crazies on the bus. I am, like her, afraid of drunks, and I have been, like him, a drunk. I am, like her, more happy eating cheap Chinese or Mexican food than in some place that's fancy. I get appalled the way she did what people pay for clothes, for food, for crap. I want, like her, to not need anyone. I want, like him, to have someone always near. I fear, like her, that I will be betrayed. I fear I will, like him, betray who loves me. I fear I can't be trusted, and I fear, like him, that if I settle down, I will miss out on something grand. I fear how much, like both of them, I want. I fear that, like him, I will throw away my life. I fear the way she did that something awful will occur, a hurricane or earthquake, and I will not be prepared and will lose everything. I fear that there will never be enough. I fear I will be left by those I love. Though both of them have been dead for years, I still get startled when I recognize some way I drop my hands or sit back on the couch or shake my head with disapproval at something on the news and see anew exactly how I'm like them the way I suddenly go cold, the way I shut up mid-sentence, turn and walk away, the way I suddenly go off alone because I'm shaking, livid, angry over something I won't say, the way I close the door so quietly when what I want to do is slam it, the way I blame whoever's near me or is absent from my troubles, the way that I resent what I don't have, the way I feel that I deserve much more and that I don't deserve my blessings. The way I want to be both left alone and to have someone follow me, pursue me, read my mind and heart and give me what I don't know how to ask. The way I would be loved entirely, though I cannot conceive of what that is. Sometimes my spouse will say when I've laughed or coughed or talked with the cats, you sound just like your mother. Or when I think that someone's been incompetent, the postman delivering something late or the trainee at the counter who can't find my reservation and I get arrogant and insulting and she says, well, I guess Dad's dropped in for a little visit. I get angry at her for saying so and ashamed that she is right. I'm also, though, a bit relieved, as if my bad behaviors are not my own, but what I have inherited, my disease. When I'm afraid, when I can't stand, when I'm afraid to sleep, I fear as much as I desire this inheritance. 
I want to keep what they have given me. I want to rid myself of it. I want to end the thing I am of them. I want them not to ever end. So that's um, a sort of more lyrical stuff from the end of youth, um, which I thought kind of exercised my writing about my family, but it didn't. Another conversation I've been having, or conversations, is about writing about ourselves and about other people and what we should say or shouldn't say or morally and how we say it. And I, I struggle with those things. Um, um, so I continue to write about people um, in my family. And the next piece I'm going to read is from a later book. You've met my father a little bit in this context, um, American Romances. It's really sort of bringing together the personal and the historical and sort of seeing um, that. And so um, the piece I'm going to read from is a piece called My Western, and um, it's trying to understand my father through Western movies. So um, I'll just read part of it, um, My Western. If only I'd known what to look for, if only I'd known how to read the writing on the screen, a private meaning just for me, but I was looking wrong, then he was gone. This is how the movie ends. The child is facing away from us and watching someone leaving. And mother wants you, I know she does, the child shouts, come back. But the man does not. Come back, the child shouts again. Shane, come back. Come back, come back, come back. By the way, you probably haven't seen Shane because it's a movie from like the 50s. Old people have seen it, but young people haven't. Anyway, bear with me. Um, I'm a grandmother. Shane, come back. Come back, come back, come back. My father can't come back because he's dead, and no one's really sure about the lone man on the horse in the movie. He came from far away, and then he left. He looked from far away like a silhouette, first black and white, then color. Although the book at Shane said he was dark in the movie, he is blonde, as is the kid who could have been his child and wished he was, though he already had a father. Footnote number one, Shane, the book. This book is full of footnotes, some of which are true, many of which are um, otherwise. The kid was looking out before the stranger came at a deer he wanted to shoot, except his rifle had no bullets. His mother hated guns. The kid was also looking up at the Wyoming sky. It's 1889 in this movie, as wide and high and blue and vast as anything we've ever, ever seen or ever will. There are mountains, too, both far away and crisp and cold, but also close like everything. The kid is looking out at them and at the giant, lonely world. Does everybody always want to be somebody else? At first, they wanted Montgomery Clift for Shane, but he was not available. Like what they say about the kind of man who can't make commitments. Why don't they just say what they fucking mean? So they got Alan Ladd, and now no one can imagine Shane as anybody else. As if the way it ended was the only way it could. At first, they wanted William Holden for the father, but he was also not available. So they got Van Heflin. Van Heflin was part Irish, born in Oklahoma, went to OU, and a Navy man. All of these, exactly like my father. They tried to get it right, but you can't everything. Some things they did, but others not. You have to read between the lines, I mean the frames, or put things in you might not see, but know or there because it all was there if you knew how to look, if you looked right. Then you could see the way it was or would be. It tried to tell you, and it was not what you thought. 
At first, they wanted Catherine Hepburn for the mother, but she was also not available, so they got Jean Arthur. Jean Arthur, like my mother, once lived in Jacksonville, Florida. We all did when my father was stationed in Pensacola. This was a good posting, at least for me, because it meant he got to be mostly at home as opposed to away on the naval carrier when we might not see him for months. My father was a pilot for the Navy, though we did not know where he flew, and a photographer. My mother taught grade school in Florida, having given up her college dream of acting. They brought Jean Arthur, who named herself after two of my favorite childhood heroes, Jean, Joan of Arc, and King Arthur, out of retirement for it. She was 53 by then, eight years older than Van Heflin, and long past her heyday as a screwball comic. In her prime, she'd also had a few romantic roles, including one as Cary Grant's love interest in Only Angels Have Wings, Howard Hawks, 1939, where she falls in love with the dashing pilot Cary Grant, the way my mother fell in love with my dashing pilot father. My mother always referred to Cary Grant as, quote, the world's most perfect man. And though Cary leaves Jean, it's only for a while, because, after, because later he comes back. My father didn't. Come back, come back, come back. It's a big line in Shane. Brandon DeWilde played the kid in Shane. He was blonde and fair and small, like Shane in me and my dad. Actually, my father wasn't short. He was 5'10 or so, but built compact and wiry like Shane. Brandon DeWilde also had severely deep-set eyes that looked a little weird. I had, if not exactly the same thing, at least a lazy eye that had to be corrected with a patch. At first, I hated it. I hated looking weird with the weird eye, then with the weird patch, but then I liked it, the patch, because it showed that I was a cowgirl and I had lost my eye in a fight. Or at the Alamo, the Alamo John Wayne, 1960, starring himself, where I almost died while defending it with Davy Crockett or I lost it to an Indian, not a nice, wise one. I was friends with them. But an Apache or a Comanche who had shot me in the eyeball with an arrow and I had to pull it out myself. I could have done Brandon DeWilde's part. Why didn't they pick me? True, I wasn't born until five years after they made the movie, and I was a girl. They had already changed the name of the kid from Bob in the book to Joe in the movie, so why couldn't they change Bob into a girl? I could have played that part. I could have done it better. I could have said, come back, come back, come back. So wonderfully, the father would have to. Van Heflin invites Shane to dinner. Mom dresses up, sets the table for four, and makes a special apple pie for the occasion. After dinner, Shane helps Dad remove a stump from the yard. The men decide he'll stick around to help the family on the farm. Shane becomes part of this nice domestic farmer's life. As around the valley, ranchers grumble about sodbusters finching the range. At first, there's been, he, after he's been home for a while, little Joey asks the gunman to teach him how to shoot. He hesitates, then he takes the kid to the corral, and they're showing him how to hold a gun when Mom comes out and stops them. She doesn't want her child to play with guns. My father taught me how to shoot. He took me to the range where he practiced shooting skeet or trap, play pigeons, and not something I could with a bungled shot, maim, hurt, or cause to suffer. I remember him telling me to squeeze the trigger evenly, don't jerk it, and always aim a bit in front of a moving target. I remember the weight of the gun in my arms, the cool of the metal, the buck of the blast, my shoulder sore for days. Later, he took me duck hunting and wore my brother's hand-me-downs, the corduroy flap, the flaps folded down over my ears, my two big boots and camouflage pants and jacket. We were in a brown field and the air was cold and the sun was coming up. There was the sound of men's and boys and my boots on the crunchy, almost frozen ground, and also the sounds of calls and cries, the whoop of wings, because the ducks knew what was up. This was in Spain, where we were posted after Florida. I think I remember this, but maybe I don't. Maybe I only think I do because I saw a photograph of me in such a field on such a day holding my father's gun. I must have been eight or nine because the gun was about my height. I do not remember firing a gun on this or any other trip at any living thing. 
although I'm sure I begged my father to. Did my mother see to that? After he retired from the Navy, Van Heflin had a successful career in the movies. After my father was piped over from the Navy, he kind of went to hell. Van Heflin did, however, play a failure in his last major role, which was an airport, George Seaton, 1970. He played a husband who tries to blow himself up so his wife can get the insurance money. So a heroic failure then, whereas my father, just plain old, kind of died of natural causes. They scattered his ashes in the sea, both Van Heflin's and my father's. Shane gets wounded in a gunfight, shot in the gut in the saloon in town by the bad ranchers who are mean to good farmers like Van Heflin. Van Heflin had planned to go fight them, but Shane, in a valiant and self-sacrificial move, socked him good so he couldn't go, because if Shane got hurt by the bad guys, no big deal. But if the father got hurt, then who would take care of his wife and child? Shane is not so wounded, however, that he can't come back to the farm after the fight to play the poignant scene we want to see. He looks down at the kid, and the kid looks up at him, and there's all of that, come back, come back, etc. I don't remember when my father left. He was away on tour with the Navy most of the time I was a kid. Then after he was piped over and got civilian jobs, he traveled a lot. Then after he lost those jobs, he stayed away for other reasons. So when it became official through their divorce that he was really leaving, it was like he was already gone. There was not any specific time or scene in which he walked or drove or rode away out on a horse and then did not come back. There was no time that I or anyone could have yelled after him, come back, come back, come back. He was already gone. What if, when Joey cried, come back, Shane had? What if we saw his face close up, his sudden recognition, then his tenderness, and then he turned his horse and looked back at the child? The child brightens full of joy, but only for an instant, because the guy's been wounded after all, and on his face is not a shining, all-forgiving, all-forgetting smile. No, no, he turns back with a gasp, a gag, a gurgle in his throat, and he starts to fall. He's slipping in the saddle, back and stomach twisted. The child sees him fall, but only partly, because his feet are in the stirrups, so he's stuck half on, half off the horse, which might be funny somewhere else, but isn't here. He's trying to right himself, but he can't. He's writhing like an insect, like a centipede or worm. Wait, we can't, we can't do this to them. Okay, then how about this? Let's say Shane turns, but in this version, his feet slip out of the stirrups who can actually fall all the way off the horse and into the child's arms. The child catches him, holds him. The wounded man is bent over now, exactly the height of the child, which might seem nice at first, but isn't because now the child can see close up at eye level in garish, gruesome, technicolor, the man's blown apart skin and his guts gouging out in brown stuff and red stuff and oozy stuff. This wasn't in the script. This stuff is not stuff a child should see. The dying man is trying to hold or push his guts back in. They keep oozing through his fingers and over the tops of his hands. Now his face is moving, he's sputtering, gagging, trying to tell the child something. His mouth falls open. He makes these bubbling, hacking, awful noise and blood starts burbling up and shooting out of them. Red at first, like spatters and drops of rain, the thick lines of them, clots, vicious, the great gob of it that spatters against the child's face. <laughs> and the child is so fucking terrified that it can hardly breathe. The guy makes another gurgling noise and his face goes white and his eyes roll back in his head and he shivers and he's got the DTs and he clenches and he falls down and that's when the child holds him up. How long does the child hold the man? How long will this go on? Is this why Shane did not come back? Is this what his departure spared the child? And I will leave you there in the midst of my Western. Um, 
what I want to do now is um, read some more recent work, um, not specifically about the earthly family, I guess, but um, our Heavenly Father. Um, in that first book, I was talking about looking at heaven and, and, and that kind of stuff. A lot of my work recently is um, it's about mishearing or misinterpreting um, stories or famous words. Um, I spend a lot of time with Catholic liturgy, and um, so this is a piece called, the title is called Make Clean Our Heart Within Us, which is um, from Psalm 51. It's also part of the Liturgy of Morning and Evening Prayer, and it's um, a petition to um, have have God clean our hearts. Um, and it also comes from, because I'm here at, a, at the Studio Center, I also spend a lot of time looking at paintings um, and looking at them. And of course, one of the parts of Catholic and indeed Western European tradition is the devotional painting. And uh, people of faith would look at a painting and just really meditate on whatever that image was. And, um, and so I, I'm very interested in the figure of St. Catherine of Siena. And so I spent a lot of time looking at images of her. And St. Catherine's story is that she had this mystical marriage with Jesus. And the mystical marriage was manifest in that she traded her heart with the heart of Jesus. So, um, uh, make clean our hearts. So it's, it's, it's about mishearing things and about uh, looking at things too. But make clean our heart within us. Make clean our heart within us. Bleach it, scrub it, sandblast or power wash it, hose it down, dip and lie, please be my guest. Nothing I have tried has worked. It's crusty brown and scabbed, a lump. It has been bit into, chewed up, gnawed on, spat out, no, wait, not out. It can't get out. It's stuck inside beneath dim bones and skin and other stuff. Tear open the skin, dig in and grab and break dim bones apart and yank. Do it by hand or leave it in a nuke it. I don't care. I gave up that malarkey long ago. The heart is weirdly shaped like an octopus with not enough arms and also twisted with osteoporosis or a plastic child's toy such as a baby shoe doll or action figure melted in the sun in that top back part of the car, made slowly soft and droopy, burning hot, it hurts to the touch, until after the sun has gone away and it cools to a hardened blob. One often thinks of it as red, but maybe it's not if the blood seeped out. Maybe it's kind of pinkish, even white in some places, almost translucent, as pretty as a pearl almost, except for what it is. Did it look worse when beating, like a gelatinous clod of something from a grade B horror movie, which I have also had conversations about this week. A gelatinous clod of something from a grade B horror movie, parenthesis, such as the mushrooms then the people in Matango, Attack of the Mushroom People, 1963, directed by Ishiro Honda, who also did the Godzilla movies in which, after a storm at sea, a boat washes up on a mysterious island. Shipwrecked together are a wealthy playboy, a professor psychologist, a famous sexy female singer and ingenue, a couple of others, and of course the skipper of the ship and his loyal sailor, just like on Sit Right Back Under Here, A Tale, The Tale of a Faithful Ship, <laughs> Gilligan's Island, which debuted on American television the following year. Who giveth unto whom? Who taketh what? <laughs> Close parenthesis pulsating, throbbing, burbling, it's sick, dull, or smooth, or shiny, but certainly pokeable surface, expanding and collapsing, expanding and collapsing, like a miner's lung, or heaving cow, or great pink scarlet bubble, a bazooka Joe bubblegum, some rowdy kid is just about to pop. 
St. Catherine traded hers with God. I remember seeing a picture of it. She's standing on the ground and he is hovering in the air a bit above her. He is on a tasteful little throw rug of a cloud. Her hand is up and out to him. Can I see something red in it? A thing to be got rid of or to keep? A thing of want. His hovering hand is open too and heading down toward her but I can't see if his hand is full or empty. Her hand is white, and his is very, very white, as pure and clean and pure and cold as snow. Has he just given his to her? Does she give hers to him? Did one or the other do it first, or did they do it simultaneously? Who opened whom, each other or themselves? There must have been a lot of blood. What happened to the blood? What happens when the traded heart does not fit in the other's waiting hole? Whose great idea was this anyway? If it was his, was it just uh, 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 ribbing her? Not ever thinking she would take him up on it and uh, uh, do it literally? <laughs> but then when she said yes, she wanted yes, she would oh please and started clawing at her chest Whatever else was he supposed to do? Or did she simply stick her hand inside and pull like those amazing Filipino healers? They didn't use anesthetics, tools, or anything. They rearrange or take bad things out of you. A secret done with just their hands and with some poor, pathetic, miserable fuck who's desperate with belief. They also only do it to someone else, not to themselves, the way St. Catherine did. Though, of course, St. Catherine was not a Filipina. She was Italian from Siena. I went there to her church one time and saw her mummified head. It looks like a giant raisin. The rest of her body is somewhere else. Rome, maybe? I don't know where the heart is. Or if there was a tool involved, what tools would they have had back then in Italy? A knife, a sword, a saw, a pair of tongs. Did someone else, not him, give her a hand? Give her, don't go there. Was someone passing by who saw her clawing at herself and crying, crying, crying inconsolably because she couldn't, she just could not do it. She could not get it right. She could not break herself. So then did someone, angel or Samaritan, appear to help? And if so, was this then a miracle? Or had she asked a friend to help? Though of whom could one ask a thing like that? What's too unclean to be made clean must be removed alone. For superpower him, this would be easy, but not for her. No, not for her. For her, it's hard. She had to work at it. This took her long, this took her years, this took her life. Pull the muscle and meat away like pulling the fat from the rib of a pig. Now yank it out. Now give it to him. It may be good what's given back, but by the time it does, you're halfway dead. My hands were never white like hers, and the other, that's more than mere unclean. It's fucking filthy. To try would render filthier. At least that's my excuse. So the last piece I'm going to read to you is um, also recent work, um, kind of from the same series. Um, which is, I guess, partly about, anyway, I won't say whatever. Okay, so um, it's called 
actually before I read this, and um, I did a book a number of years ago called The Dogs. That's The Dogs, A Modern Bestiary. Do we have this for sale? Yes, we do. Um, anyway, so um, it's, a, it's a Dogs, A Modern Bestiary, and you probably remember the medieval bestiary is a form that's sort of quasi-scientific and quasi-metaphorical, and it takes, describes actual animals and then describes, you know, the lion eats meat, and the lion represents kingship. So, um, and my bestiary is, instead of a bunch of different animals, it's like all the chapters about dogs. Um, and the overall ostensible modern-day stories, it's a story about a woman who lives in a very small studio apartment with a pack of Doberman pinchers. And every chapter is, um, anyway, it's about there. And so they're, they're bad dogs. They're, they're very difficult dogs. Um, and they're really mean to her. Um, but there's also some goodness to some of them. Anyway, so there's a dog in this story. Um, and it's time has passed, and now now the dog is now there's a different dog. So that's the dog at the Delta. <coughs> I'm on a raft on the Nisqually River, which is near where I live in Seattle, Nisqually Delta. I'm on a raft on the Nisqually River. We've come out of the woods, and I can see the open water of the Sound ahead of us. We're at the Delta. The water is brown but clean. It's just the soil that's been stirred up. The banks on either side are the same color. The river's slowly going out in swirls and slow, slow currents. I'm standing on the raft and holding a pole, dipping it in and finding the ground and pushing off. I don't really need to do this much. We're moving with the current so I can stand here in the air and sun and feel them. The banks are brown and muddy, and there are hoof prints of deer, I think, and scratchy little prints that must be birds. And beyond are meadows, grassy and green but also with red and white and yellow flowers, and I think even some blue ones. Birds fly by and chirp, and there's an otter on the bank, and everything is perfect, kind, and quiet. A dog is on the raft with me, my dog. My dog sits quiet and obedient, content, it seems. Its head is up and sniffing. It likes to be out in the clean, good air. It sits on its haunches, the sun on its back. I wonder if it needs a drink, but it's a smart dog. Knows it can put its head over the side and drink. The water is brown but clean. I've got the pole in the water, pushing and stroking, lazy almost. Call me Huck. The sun is clear and bright and the sky is blue. I feel pressure on the pole and look down and see the water churning and churning more, unhappy, almost rumbling. There's black things in the water, things I barely glimpse in a faraway sound, then round and black, the top of a tire somebody's junked, the back of a fish or two, but then there's more than more. It can't be sharks, a bunch of eels. I hate them even more, although I'm less afraid of them. It's not. That faraway sound was my dog, rumbling low and worried in her throat. She was trying to wish them away and warn me and control herself. She gets it even worse than me, but all for naught. We are in a churning pack of them, of dark black backs and shiny dripping teeth. The back of my dog is shivering. Her teeth are bared. She's both afraid and gearing for a fight. I don't know what I am. Suddenly on the shore I see a man. Maybe he's been there all along, but only now I see him. He's standing there alone, and though he's far away, it feels like I can see him close. I see his eyes. He looks at me across the water, seeing me as if he's saying, come. My dog looks up. She sees him too. Her ears twitch and she whines. She wants to go to him. She looks at him then back at me. Although she wants to go, she will not leave me. Around us in the churning froth, a million dogs are swirling, 
like in Jaws. There's not that famous music, though. It's quiet. What I can hear is water, still but moving slowly underneath the way they churn. What I can hear is the less than whine my poor dog tries to hide from me. She wants us both to go to him. If we go in the water, they will get us, and before we get the chance to drown, they'll tear us limb to limb. It's almost like I feel their teeth already. The man on the shore is watching us. He waits for me to come to him. In my head, I see that if I did, if I stepped off this pallet, and my loyal dog did too, and walked to him across the tops of the bodies of the terrible dogs, or if we even actually walked on water, this could happen. But I do not. I do not go to him. Why won't I go? Why won't I go, I ask myself, as he tells me, come again, as if it's simple. Maybe it is. Maybe it's only a matter of lifting my foot from whatever shaky base it's on into the air above whatever shifts beneath, and then toward the place I think he is but I do not. My dog is whimpering again, now more afraid, it seems, than me, but infinitely loyal. Despite whatever else she knows, she neither will forsake me nor abandon. I still don't understand how she abides with me. Thank you for listening. Um, you know, Gary said we don't have to do Q&A, but it's 20F, so if anybody has a question for me, you can ask now or later. Anyone, anything? Yes? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that, actually, because somebody tried to proof that for me and said, you changed from it to she, and I said, Indeed I did, didn't I? Indeed I did. Um, it's, it's, it's important for me that um, the gender of the dog moves from indistinguishable to towards the narrator of the whole book, which is a she, which is an I. So, so, sort of amb amb so, so it's like we're not sure, and then it's like she comes closer to her. So that, that was a conscious choice. Yeah, good yeah, bookstore people. They really know how to listen to these things, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Question or comment or anything? Okay, I'll sign books before I bum a cigarette from somebody. Okay, thanks again, you guys. <laughs> <laughs>